Yeah. And now it's on. Is it too loud? You want to make it a little lower? Okay. So uh, first we'll pick up some leftover questions, and then we can go on. But before we do, I just want to share um, a short poem at the beginning of our book. The whole book is a footnote on this Buddhist poem by Wang Chang Ling, 8th century. Under an empty autumn sky stretch endless wastes where no one goes. Who is that horseman riding in from the west? West, birthplace of the Buddhas. So who is that coming in with enlightenment now that I am in the wasteland under the autumn sky? So he's saying, okay, it's not really going to happen in the spring. It's not really going to happen when everything is going really well. Sometimes it happens in the midst of the endless, what seem like endless wastes where no one goes. The utter aloneness of the poet. But only in that position does he notice the horseman of enlightenment riding in his direction. And it reminds us that the dark time of life is the shadow time of our lifetime in which the psyche is at its best in pointing to where the enlightenment is. So this is a way of reframing those periods of emptiness, depression, isolation. It could be that your whole life has become, in that moment, a welcoming of the horseman of enlightenment, which comes in the shadow time. And I use a, I use a, a comment on this in the, in the um, epilogue. Chang Ling's poem is now clear. The horseman of enlightenment comes from the west where the sun had set. The wasteland is the suitable ground into which the figure of enlightenment can enter. This same land was referred to by Emily Dickinson. Hope is a thing with feathers. I heard it in the chillest land. Even a Christmas carol of our childhood said it. In thy dark streets shineth an everlasting light. So we knew this for years. In thy dark streets, not in the bright streets, in the dark streets shineth the everlasting light because the light is attracted to the dark like heads to tails, completing the um, combination of opposites. And I use one last uh, very powerful image, which is the story of Jacob. 
in uh, Genesis. And now I'm quoting from the book of Genesis. Jacob stopped for the night because the sun had set. We know when we read something like that, that something wonderful is about to happen. And of course, that's when he has the dream of the ladder that connects the, the ordinary world to the world of, of the light. And when he awoke, again I'm quoting, when he woke from this dream, he exclaimed, Surely the Lord is here, and I was unaware of it. How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God and the gate of heaven. So, because he stopped for the night, because he paused and let himself go into the shadow, because he was willing to go into the dark, he noticed, became aware of what he was unaware of before. What was he unaware of? That how awesome is this place, this moment right here and now, this is none other, this where I am right now, this is none other than the house of God and the gate of heaven. The same Dharma gates in our tradition. So when the Japanese poet Hakuin says, all things are from the very beginning, Buddha, this very body, the Buddha, this very moment, eternity, this very place, the lotus paradise. That's the same as Jacob saying, how awesome is this place? This is the house of God. This is the, this is the uh, container of the divine. And it all happens because he stopped for the night. So could we stop for our shadow? Could we stop and let ourselves look into it instead of constantly projecting it could we withdraw the projections, bring them back to ourselves and say, what does this feeling about this other person, either of strong attraction or of strong repulsion, tell me about me? When you do that, you have stopped where the sun has set. And it'll often be the chillest land. It'll often be the empty wastes where no one goes. Only into such a place can the horsemen of enlightenment ride. So that's the wild horses. We will ride them someday. Okay, so questions that have come up in the meantime? Okay. By the way, regarding the two um, handouts while you're waiting to present your question, um, I think instead of going through them, um, they're pretty self-explanatory, so uh, simply take them with you, and uh, you can have them to read on your own. So I, instead of spending time on each of them, uh, just take them with you as resources. Yes? I wanted to first of all thank you for the opportunity to be with you today. Well, thank you. It's a wonderful opportunity for all of us. Thank so you. while our psyche is pointing us to all this work, you know, this, that needs to be done, my question is the fit between that 
natural and to be encouraged pointing and work to be done. With this, uh, I, today I wrote down earlier when you said, feel like something, <coughs> excuse me, feel like something isn't hanging on that requires attention. So the reconciliation of that desired feeling like something isn't hanging on that requires attention, like there's always something more we need to do, there's work to do, there's stuff to do, that kind of can take me out of the here and now, and yet knowing that it's this pointing of the psyche to this work that's really an important piece of integrating who I am as a person. Mm -hmm. And it's, so it's reconciling those two things. And I'm hoping <laughs> that you'll have some clue to how you can have that sense of feeling like there isn't always this requirement of work to be done and yet still glean all of who we are being and becoming with this gift of life. Am I asking that clearly? It's kind of a tall order. Well, <laughs> like how can you be in the now and be happy and still be working on all this projection stuff, you know? Yeah. It's kind of like that. Yes. We will, uh, when we talk about... No, shortly. I want you to answer it now. Oh. <laughs> Here and now. <laughs> so I couldn't wriggle out of that one. But thank you for getting the question. Yes, I understand. Like, uh, is all our time going to be spent on working for the rest of our life? Or if we? So then, if all of our time is spent on working, which is fine, you know, I mean, if that's it, I can accept that. Then, how do we do that with a feeling of being current and not like there's always something else that we ought to be, should be, could be doing? Um, for me, that happens with the loving kindness practice in which you on a daily basis would affirm to yourself and, and even aspire if you uh, can't easily affirm it that um, I have happiness, compassion, love, loving kindness, and equanimity and that they are always and already right here in me. And I just uh, tap into them directly in the meta practice. And it kind of reminds me of Dogen's. Uh, Dogen is the founder of the Soto Zen Buddhist school, 13th century. And he says, when you're actually sitting and in those little moments when you really do free yourself from all the embroideries and you're just right here now in the present as who you are, that is enlightenment. That is exactly the same as Buddha's awakening. So in the moments in which it's okay with me that I be happy, that I look upon myself with compassion, that I act toward myself with loving kindness, and that I see all that occurs with equanimity, when I finally let myself believe that that is okay, and that's, that will take usually a great deal of, of changing and overturning a long history of messages that contradict it, that tell us, no, that isn't for you, 
in the moment in which I say, yes, this is for me, that is the equivalent of what you're asking. That's when we just let it be okay that these belong to us, that these are the limitless potentials that are in us. And in our practice, each potential comes up and actualizes, so it becomes real for us. And at the same time, in the rest of the day, for the other 23 hours and 50 minutes, uh, we have our work pointed out to us. But the po important thing about the work is that it's, it's not as if it's a big task and obligation that weighs upon us. It is a continual opportunity for release. Release of what? Of that frozen iceberg inside that wants to come up above the waves more and more into the sunlight so it can melt. And uh, we don't feel so constricted. So it's, it's like loving to find out the work. I have really personally um, oriented myself this way. And now even when someone criticizes me, I, I can frame it into, oh, here's a chance to learn something else about this weird terrain that is David. And what are some of the, of the hidden corners of it that I can finally look into? We like dropping down onto the Isle of Kauai, standing there in the center, and all around you in concentric circles are wonderful flora and fauna, unbelievable beauty. And all you have to do is walk in whatever direction you want to walk in, and you'll find it. That's how we want to look at our work, not as Sisyphus carrying a big heavy stone up the hill. <laughs> we want to look at, oh, here's a chance to find out something else, some, some other angle that, um, that can become uh, interesting to me. So that's what's happened. We have moved into the finding out about ourselves as something interesting rather than something to avoid. It is freedom from fear. Good. There was somebody else had a question. You better to have questions Hi. from people who haven't asked before, so we can give everybody a chance. So, on a practical note, um, and accepting that we're being pointed toward these areas where we have some work to do. Through our projections. Right. Is there a way to get through it faster? <laughs> <laughs> like I'm, we're maybe looking at, a, at um, a relationship or a pattern of relationships that doesn't work and being able to identify, oh, I've been here before. And now I would like to move through this more quickly and start to make some different choices. But just that holding on and hanging on and not letting go. Um, but just all of it, getting through it faster? <laughs> and that's my question. I guess it's um, the more open you are to acknowledging the projections. And remember that it won't be literal. 
For instance, let's say you can't stand controlling people and you think to yourself, well, but I'm not controlling. <laughs> but you have to ask yourself, well, is there some way in which I'm manipulative? Is there some way in which I kind of push people to do things that they may not really want to do, including within the family, my children or whatever? It's, it will be subtle, but uh, the more apt you are to work with the projections as information about yourself, that's how the work is done more expeditiously. And uh, the more you become indignant when someone points out something about you that's negative or unacceptable, then uh, that slows down the work. Everybody is pointing us to the work. What is this work? It's, it's not the work of building the Great Wall of China. It's the work of Columbus. It's that kind of work. On the notion of uh, relationship patterns and moving through them faster, or you know, our, our projections faster, it, it seems like it's really about well, pausing. Yes. Pa pausing then, so it's not about so much going faster. But if we can pause right now, we might be able to get a get the nugget about the pattern. Yes. Uh, one 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 uh, in dreams. Um, my name is Linda, and I'm on my third marriage. Um, so when when I was in my second when I was in my second marriage, I I would frequently have these dreams uh, of my first husband, and I'd wake up panicked, and then I'd oh, such relief that it wasn't true, mm -hmm. and. Um, and then near the, and this, this happened all through the second marriage, which lasted 20 years. And then um, I, got, I, I got into my third marriage, and then I started dreaming of the first marriage and the second marriage. And, and, and so the, the first, the second, in the second span, I would think, oh, what I need to realize is that there's something of the, husband in the first marriage that's showing up in the husband of the second marriage. But then when it happened in the third marriage, I finally got that there was something about me. <laughs> and that when ultimately came back where I had this dream that all along I was supposed to be married to the first husband. And I got what that really was. Was there something about me that I couldn't Embrace, you know, my shadow. And then in the second marriage, the same thing. I, I was supposed to be married to the second husband, too, which was a part of me that I had projected out. And then in the third marriage, you know, so it's like, well, maybe I'll get through more marriages and finally be able to marry all of the parts of me. Mm -hmm. Good. Yes, that's a good way to put it, about the parts of you. So we could say that... Um, Whatever we leave incomplete, we are doomed to repeat because the psyche is giving us yet another chance 
to complete something. The psyche is, has the same vocabulary as an ant, A-N-T. Ant has only two words, done and undone. That piece of cake left behind by the picnickers has to be moved over there. It's undone now. Keep working until it's done. Then go to another undone and so forth. So you have done and undone. Same with the psyche. If you leave something incomplete, then you just go on to the next relationship in which you repeat something because you're still trying to complete the original issue, whatever it was. How does something get complete, completed? It's addressed, called by name, like calling Rumpelstiltskin by name. It's addressed. It's processed, meaning you go through all the feelings associated with it, all the memories that it brings up from childhood, and you withdraw all the projections that you're putting on the other person and bring them back to yourself. As simple as that. <laughs> and then the result is it's somehow resolved. How do you know that it's resolved? You've changed something. A change has occurred. That's the equivalent of now it's complete. No need to repeat. But very few of us have been brought up to work on things in that way. We just figure, oh, well, you just find somebody that you love and get married and everything will work itself out. But things don't work themselves out, except very occasionally as a special grace. But for most of us, it takes work. So first you address whatever the issue is. For instance, I have a craving for attention. And it's not being fulfilled here in this relationship. Then you work on processing it. Here's what it feels like to want attention and not get it. But notice that you gave it to that woman at the party last night. So now I know you can give it. <laughs> and of course, this reminds me of how my father didn't give me attention. And I guess I need to work on that in my own therapy, because it's about me and dad, not about you. And I've got projections on you from the beginning, thinking you were going to pay attention to me. And I had hoped that you would reverse what happened to me in my family life. But I've got to realize that that came from me, and I have to, the person, the, the came from within me, and I have to bring that back to myself and recognize that it's my issue, and you will only support me in working through my stuff. You will not do it for me. So once I let go of that, which is let go, letting go of the expectations that are under the projections, then I have resolved something and I can make a change. What is this change? Expect less 
or expects what is appropriate, withdraw the projections, and no longer confuse husband and father. Because even though they're of the same gender, they don't really go together. So that, that would, that's, part, that's what the work would look like within a relationship. We didn't see our parents do this, most of us. We just saw arguments, and things never really got resolved. It's always kind of up in the air. And so we didn't have a model for how to do this. Yeah. What you're saying crosses the board to gay couples as well. That the oh, interactions yes. Yes, and the relationship issues are very similar. Same exact. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Anyway, uh, or you can just talk loudly enough. Okay. Can you talk loudly enough? Yeah, I can talk. Go ahead. Um. All right. Um. I was wondering, how do you tell the difference between um, between projecting something that the person? Uh, my question isn't completely formulated. How do you know if they are the thing or if it's just a projection? Okay, that's a good question, and von Franz answers that. She says, since we're all reasonable people, every projection will be based on something that's actually in that other person, but that's irrelevant. That's just a coincidence. All that matters is what can I get from this? What can I get from this energy that I'm putting in to this person? What am I losing from myself by putting so much into what I might get from you? And of course, you're try what we're trying to do is get the, get the energy back. It's kind of a selfish purpose, but positively. Good. Someone else? Yeah. Hi. Hi. I was just wondering about um, like the feelings of shame that can come up, or if you could just speak to that about uh, as related to like encountering the shadow and. Um, and yeah, maybe like that, that being an initial reaction. Uh, yes, she's bringing up about shame that sometimes um, you could be ashamed of yourself or people could shame you. But once we understand that whatever we have done if it's somehow related to something that you're ashamed of having done, then you reframe it as, yes, I did this and I now make amends for it and I don't do it again. That's the equivalent of releasing ourselves from the shame. Now, what we have done is usually called 
is usually in the realm of guilt, and shame is usually defined not as what we have done, but as about who we are. And some of us in childhood were shamed for who we were, even when we weren't doing anything that was considered wrong. It was just wrong to be who we are. Everybody understand the difference? And sometimes it's even like I can remember in my childhood it was my brother was being blamed for the wrong things he was doing, but I could really see the difference. With him, it was always about things he was doing, but with me, it was very mysterious. It's that there's something wrong with me, <laughs> no matter what I do. That there's something wrong with you and the way you see things and the way you do things, and they can't put it into words, but uh, they know that there's something about you that's definitely unacceptable. That's where the shame comes from. So the problem there is you can't just bring it to the world of amends. You don't know where to bring it because they can't quite put it into words. So shame has this element of mystery in it, and that's why it's so difficult to release ourselves from it. Okay, other, but we don't want to be ashamed of our shadow side because, uh, remember the poem by uh, the Roman playwright Terence, nothing human is alien from me. That says it all. Once you get that, anything that humans can do, I can do, and everybody can do it, we all have the potential for good, bad, and everything in between, then there's nothing to be ashamed of because it just comes with your, your humanity. Okay. <laughs> um, all right. Sorry. Mm. You're, you're talking, I'm not going to let you off the hook here because I think that's yeah. an important element. Um, okay. The, the, the difference between guilt and shame and how guilt is over something you've you've done and shame really is so imbued in who you are yes and it seems like what you were kind of describing is maybe almost the practice of loving kindness where you really look at yourself and you love yourself like you would other people and that reminds me of earlier you bringing up the golden rule of do unto others as you do unto yourself well if you see yourself as bad how can you treat others as different than you would treat yourself. Good point. Um, and maybe even turning that on its head and, and instead of, you know, do unto others as you would... Um, Have them do to, to yeah, you. Yeah, do unto yeah. you. Do unto yourself. Yeah, exactly. Think of yourself first and change how you you act toward yourself based on how you, you treat somebody else better, mm. you know, in other words. You know, sometimes there's the, the idea of... Um, think about how would you treat a friend who is in the same situation you're in. You probably would be loving to them. You'd probably be understanding to them. So kind of turn it around back on yourself. So I'm wondering, going back to the shame thing, is it just loving kindness? Is that really the key? Or how do you get beyond the shame? You would have to go back to the original statement 
there's something wrong with you. So let's take that statement. And you'd have to say to yourself, in the way I was perceived by them, there was something different about me. And as I look back upon it, I can see what some of these differences are. And some of these differences I had to hide for safety's sake. Now I want to bring them back up and make friends with them because this is who I really am and always have been. And it's only wrong in that context. It's not wrong across the board to be who I am. And I'm presuming that, you know, this means like what it does mean for both of us, for most of us, which is they felt something was wrong with us because we were, they, we were showing that we were not willing to abide by their strict standards and that we had a different way of seeing the world and a different way of being in it. And somehow this was not acceptable to people who were trying to mold us into what they wanted us to be, as opposed to being so excited to find out who we actually are. And once you start to see it that way, two things happen. One, compassion for them, for their narrow view. And two, compassion for ourselves, for what we went through, and appreciation that somehow we maintained the light of who we are through those dark ages. And now how can I come back to that and be okay with it and be proud of it, even? Good, let's have one more question and then we're going to go on to how to befriend the shadow uh, in addition to the projections. Something I can't work out very easily in my own practice is that in doing shadow work, I, I, I fear or sometimes I come across emotions that are not very attractive emotions that aren't very elevated in the Buddhist practice. And I'm attached to some of those. And my Buddhist practice tells me to let those emotions go and not identify with them. And yet my shadow work, to go into them deeply, requires being willing to face up to those things, maybe even express them. And I can't work that out. Do you understand my question? Yes, very much so. So that will always be a problem with our spiritual practice if it does not take into account what we learn from psychology. Obviously, my perspective is, is somehow attempting to combine the spiritual and the psychological, which I've hopefully been showing throughout the day and will continue to do so. But sometimes we have to make the choice and we have to say, okay, this is my psychological work and it's okay for me to do it and I'm not going to be shamed by any spiritual practice that uh, tells me it's not okay to look at myself, to be with who I am so that I find out more. And now we would interpret our spiritual practice as as long as I don't become attached. I can always be who I am and go through whatever phases I go through 
but um, I, I continue to recognize that everything is impermanent in some way, and so everything is um, everything has to move through. But maybe I didn't answer that question fully, so bring it up again or keep it in mind and see if I go to it in what I'm about to say, and if not, I want to come back to it. Because it is a, uh, it's puzzling and difficult, and I have run up against this in my own experience. But I think we can work it out. Before I go to the befriending the shadow, one other thing came up during the break, and I wanted to just mention it without spending too much time on it. As I have said before, um, since our inner life is unconscious to a great extent, hidden from us, and it's hard to reach into it. So instead, we will project it outwardly, and that's how we will catch ourselves in the act of finding out who we are. But this unconscious, from the Jungian, not Freudian, but Jungian point of view, is not only personal, In other words, it's not, only, um, it's not only the trunk in the attic with all the old pictures of your family. So this unconscious is not only personal, containing your personal story. This unconscious also has a collective dimension. It's the story of all humanity. It's the Library of Alexandria. Not just your personal album. This collective part of our unconscious, of course, also has a shadow. So the personal shadow is the one we're talking about today. That's our topic. We are reminding ourselves that there's a larger shadow, the shadow of the human species. It contains uh, wonderful things like heroism. It contains terrible things like war and genocide. And um, to hold this collective shadow is to feel that it has something in it that is bigger than any individual, unlike the personal shadow. feels like, oh, this is I, and this is what I'm hiding, and this is what I'm projecting, and so forth. We can feel that in a personal, individual way. But this part of ourselves, which doesn't come up as often as the personal part, but does come up sometimes, we're picking up on the vast darkness of humanity for good and evil. <clears throat> and it's way too big to hold. So 
Traditionally, we have found a way to project this positive and negative shadow. Obviously, we can't project it onto individuals. So, because it's so big, so vast, so transcendent of any individual, so it becomes God and the devil. Could it be that the, um, the dualism, which goes all, all the way back to Zoroastrianism, the Fertile Crescent, and the Jews were in exile in the Fertile Crescent, present-day Iraq and Iran, and picked up on this division and incorporated into some of their teaching, even though this is not the, the pure teaching of Judaism, that there's a God of all good and there is a devil of all evil, and they serve as the projections of the collective shadow. Whereas individuals like husbands, wives, political figures, whatever, serve as the projections from our personal shadow. Also on this side, you could put guardian angels would be positive. projections of the positive shadow, they protect you and they lead you to the good. And uh, the demons who are in, in Satan's employ and who, um, shall we say, uh, lead you to the dark side. So, so now we can understand a little better, we're not going to spend a lot of time on it, but that in some of our traditional religious background, we have a division like this. Now we can place it in psychological terms and understand why over the ages, why for all these centuries, people have held on to this particular division, that, there's a, that there are forces of light and forces of darkness and the book of Revelation, last book of the New Testament, foretells that at the end of time, these two forces, the, pot, the forces of good led by the archangel Michael and the forces of evil led by the archangel Lucifer will do their final battle. And the forces of St. Michael will win and will cast the cast Satan and all his evil angels into a lake of unending fire. And all that will be left is God and the good angels and all the good people who have followed their, um, their way throughout the ages. That's called the apocalyptic vision. So that vision is really about this same topic that we're on, the shadow. So you want to look into your own religious belief and ask yourself if you're holding on to a division like this 
and to what extent it is serving you to help you integrate yourself in a world of shadows that are bigger than ourselves, or to what extent it's dividing you from others so that you see, um, what's that phrase that uh, uh, Bush used? Axis of evil. Axis of evil, yeah. <laughs> so to start to place certain political groups in Satan's employ, be the axis of evil, as opposed to the axis of good, when you do that, you're simply projecting from your collective shadow. To withdraw the projections, how do we do that? Very simply, we say, we quote the poet, Ter the poet Terence, everything that humans can do, I can do. Whether I follow a constitution or whether I'm a religious fanatic, I have all the possibilities in me for good and evil that have appeared throughout the ages. Where is it? It's in my collective shadow. And most of us go through our entire life and never go there, which is fine, because we're, we're basically staying here in our personal shadow. But some people, like those in power, get the chance over and over again to go to this collective side. Hitler had that chance. So did Alexander the Great. So did Bush, and so did Nixon, and so forth. And they were, you know, they had the power to take people into this realm. It's very, very scary, and you can't control what happens here. You think you can, but it's like Scylla and Charybdis in the Odyssey, even though you think you can get through, you're going to be pulled by the whirlpool of something so vast that no individual can deal with it. This is why the image of St. George and the dragon is so powerful, because what is that image saying? It's saying that a person can overcome the collective Shadow. Dragon, man. A person can do it. So we have a whole series of archetypes with this exact, um, this exact pattern. You have David and Goliath. St. George and the dragon. St. Michael and Lucifer, etc. You have, you know, the two sides that keep battling. And uh, I just wanted to throw this in so you could see something about our traditional religious beliefs that really fits in with the shadow. Everybody follow? Okay, so let's limit ourselves to just one question on this topic because this is not our topic. So we'll go talk about this some other time. So I guess my question is then essentially any community could have the collective unconscious, right? Be it yes. family, be it any community that you sit in. Yes? It's everywhere. Yes. 
See, it changes the way you see someone like Hitler. You could see him as someone who leads the people into hate, greed, and delusion, the three poisons of Buddhism. You could see him as someone who is a leader. He leads you into it. But that's not really what happens. He, dep he was deputized to design a program to express the darkest wishes of the German people. Not only German people, but all people all over the world who somehow joined in through silence or through support. So sometimes someone comes along, looks like a leader. That's not really what's happening. It's there's enough darkness in the whole collective. Somebody comes along and says, I pick up on this. There's darkness here. There's hate of the Jews. I'm going to make something of this. And then he becomes um, legitimated as the one who will make it happen. Make what happen? These dark shadow wishes that are in, the, uh, that are in us just because we're Cro-Magnon. So what are you going to do with something like this? Just notice it and uh, you know, remain aware that every time we make that distinction, axis of evil and we're the good guys, every time you do that, you're maintaining and legitimating and endorsing a division of projections whereby wars and genocide can be allowed. So we want to stay away from that. So let's take a look at our befriending of the shadow. If you have other questions, you can ask me during the break. So let's start with befriending the positive shadow. That's the easy one. You look at all the ways that you have of projecting admiration and godlike qualities onto others. Anybody you think of as perfect? He's got it all. Any of those kind of thoughts? And you turn those admirations into affirmations. <clears throat> so let's use a simple example. <clears throat> you strongly admire someone who has um, the ability to stay with a project and really work it out. And you really admire his stick to itivity. And I wish I could be like that. And then instead of saying, I wish I could be like that, you say, I have the ability to stay with a project and see it through to the end. Just to make that statement to yourself. And then 
for our purposes, from our Buddhist perspective, I like to expand it and use my loving kindness style. So I say, <clears throat> I have the patience to work things out. Those I love, may those I love have the patience to work things out. May those, and so forth. Finally, may all beings have what it takes to stay with things and work them out to show follow-up. Let's say you admire someone for being so tenderly loving. I have that same love in myself. May the universe keep giving me opportunities to show it. May those I love have the same kind of love that I see in Dalai Lama or whoever it may be, and so forth. So never stop just with yourself. Always bring it to others. So this is how we're taking the projection of admiration, turning it into a statement about ourselves without losing our appreciation of the one we admire. I continue to admire the Dalai Lama because he looks for nonviolent solutions to problems. He has let go of the need to retaliate. I admire how he looks for ways to reconcile rather than retaliate. I have it in me to reconcile with the people around me and not retaliate. May those I love reconcile and not retaliate. May those with whom I have difficulties reconcile and not retaliate. It's a lot to ask, but we couldn't ask for less. And it turns the, the nice thing about the loving kindness style it moves from personal to collective because it begins with you and it ends with all beings. So it includes both. Questions about this? <clears throat> so I'm acknowledging that I have this in myself. I'm affirming it in so many words. And I'm opening myself to opportunities for it to happen. I'm asking the universe to bring me those opportunities. Keep showing me how I can let go of retaliation. Let people do things to me that I know I would want to retaliate about, but instead, I'm going to have to find ways to reconcile. Imagine being like that. That you would welcome everything. I don't go with the everything that happens from people and things. Um, I don't go with the new age superstition that everything that happens is meant for good. Everything will turn out right in the end. I know I say this in one of my books, but I changed my mind. <laughs> um, <clears throat> now I have changed it 
Thanks to reading uh, Stephen Butterfield. He's a great Buddhist writer. And he changed my view because he says, everything that happens gives you an opportunity for practice. That's the only promise that's made. Not it's going to work out for the best. Not you're getting the lessons you needed to get. Not anything from the secret or the new age. Or It's just plain. Everything that happens gives you an opportunity for practice. Practice of what? Mindfulness and loving kindness. You so, can't go wrong when you go that way. You can't go wrong. When you go the other way, it's all going to turn out for the best. You're going to feel bad when it doesn't turn out the way you had hoped. And God knows we look over the course of our life and some things didn't turn out for the best. Some, some things just got kept getting worse and worse. So why go there? Why not go to what's definite, what you really can trust? What can I really trust? I'll be getting an opportunity for practice. <laughs> that I can trust. Anyway, two questions on this, and then we'll go to the yeah, negative. Yeah, so my question was... Okay. Sorry, oh, no. Well, it, you already have asked right. one. But let me just okay. go to someone else, but see me during the break. Okay. Okay. This... Uh, I wanted to ask, what if this is in the context of... This, what you're talking about is in the context of spirituality and loving kindness and Buddhism. But yeah. your books are for everyone, and so... Can you use that same thing for the world at large who are not Buddhists, who don't particularly believe in or do believe in a particular religion but doesn't, ne does not necessarily assign to what you're saying? Oh, yes. You can apply this to whatever your spiritual view is. You can work with this um, in Buddhism as the practice of loving kindness. You can work... But if with you, it you, as if in a religious perspective as prayer. So I can say, um, oh Lord, give me this quality. Show me how I can express this quality. No problem. The, the point here is that instead of just letting something end with admiration, we are always going to interpret the admiration as a pointer to something in ourselves that must be like this or else we would never have admired it. Because admire in Latin, the mirror part means to look into, the AD part means to or toward, to look toward and into, that's admire. But what you're looking toward and into when you look at the Dalai Lama you want to look toward and into him as the mirror of qualities in yourself. I am looking at a mirror, not a picture. That says it all. So that changes it from it's all about him to, oh, so that's what humans can do. Be like going to a friend's house and he's doing something on the computer. You both have Macs and he's doing something. And you say, 
I didn't know a Mac could do that. And the guy said, well, yeah, of course. All you do is, you know, it's command such and such, and then you hold down the option key. Yeah. You say to yourself, oh, then my computer can do this, because I have a Mac too. <laughs> that's the idea. Oh, I, <laughs> I can do this. Just a matter of holding down the right things and pressing the right things and so forth. You can do it. So I may not get the chance that he has of doing it on the collective level, China and Tibet, but I can do it on the personal level. I can do it with that guy next door or the guy down the street or the guy at work or whoever. And I affirm and aspire. I have this and may I have the opportunities to show it. That's called befriending the positive shadow. Everybody following? Okay. So, um, do you want to take a short stretch break just for like five or ten minutes and then we'll go to the befriending the negative shadow? Okay. Let's do that. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.